Okay, good evening, everybody. Very special thank you to Torah Anytime, as always, for sharing this shir with those of you who are not here in person this evening. The topic tonight is a home of blessing, infusing Kedusha in our homes, into our families, and into our lives. I, uh, I want to start off with the very last source here, number 19. There's an incredible Medrash HaGadol that describes the, the agony that Yitzchak Avinu was going through after the passing of his mother. She passed away when he was 37. And really for three years until he turns 40 and he marries Rivka, the Medrash HaGadol explains that he would walk into his mother's empty tent and he would see that the light, the radiance that was there when she was alive was diminished. He would start pulling out his hair. But as soon as he married Rivka, and he brought Rivka into her, his mother's tent, the or, the radiance, the light, the warmth of Kedusha came back. And only then did Yitzchak feel a sense of comfort. And that's what the Pasuk says, that he loved Rivka, and he felt real Nechama only now after the passing of his mother. To picture the, the Tsar, to use that description of, of someone of that stature pulling out his hair, that clearly means that, that Yitzchak was going through a very difficult time emotionally for years of his life until he married Rivka. What happened when he married Rivka? So it's clear from the Medrash HaGadol that at that point, the light came back, meaning to say, the Kedusha, the sanctity of his mother, the, the, the aura that she brought into the house was lacking, and therefore his pain wasn't just the, the, the loss of a mother. It wasn't just the personal anguish that he was going through, but it was the loss of Kedusha. It was that lacking, that void of sanctity. Only when he marries Rivka, the Kedusha comes back. V'yinachem, now he has Nechama. We all want to be happy in life. We all want to have Menuchas nefesh and Sipuk nefesh and Simchas HaChayim. But oftentimes we don't connect the idea of Simcha, of living with joy and Kedusha and sanctity. I think in our heads, those are two very different ideas. One is you're happy, you're having fun, you're enjoying yourself. And when we think of Kedusha, we, we don't think of, of Simcha. We think of intensity, COVID harosh, you know, being very, very focused on growth. But Yitzchak Avinu only had that return of Nechama, that, that Meshivas Nefesh, that, that revitalization after his, his mother's passing, when the Kedusha returned. So I want to focus briefly this evening on the role and the importance of Kedusha within ourselves, 
within our families and within our bias within the home. We know famously Yaakov has a statement that he's very proud of. The message that he sends to Esav, according to the second understanding of Rashi, is he says that im lovan garti mitzvah shemarti that I was living with Lavan and I kept all of the six thirteen mitzvos. And I did not learn from his evil ways. Right, so it sounds like he's saying two different points here. First, I kept all of the mitzvos, and I feel very good about that. And I did not learn, I was not influenced from the ways of Lavan. One basic question on this Rashi is why does Yaakov have to make both statements? Just tell Esav, Taryag mitzvah shemarti. I kept the entire Torah. What are you adding? What message are you adding by saying, Velo lamadati, I didn't learn from him. Obviously, you didn't learn from him if you're, if you're staying loyal to Judaism. That's one ha'ora, one, uh, one thing I like to explore in Rashi. Later on in the Parsha, we have Yaakov give very strange instructions to his family, where he says, El beso to his household, ve'el kol asherimo, hasiru es Elohei hanecher asher besochacham. Remove all of the foreign gods that you have. Ve'hitaru ve'chlifu simlo seichem, and purify and change your clothing. Remove the foreign gods that you have with you? Why in the world would base Yaakov, why in the world would the house of Yaakov Avinu, this is after the episode of Shechem, why would they have foreign gods? Why would they be walking around with idols? So the simple interpretation is, they had a lot of the wealth, a lot of the possessions from Shechem, and Yaakov was just making sure Look carefully in your bags. If you have any idols with you, make sure to throw those out. That should not be within the Kedusha and the Tahara of Klal Yisrael. But I think there's something deeper here as well. And the third point is a very powerful Gemara. The Gemara speaks about Micha. Micha, one of the characters shrouded in mystery in Nach. We find him at the end of Sefer Shoftim where he starts off as a very sincere young man and he only means well. He steals money from his mother not wanting her to make an idol, but eventually he himself does make an idol and he gets swept away in the business and he opens up his own temple of Avodah Zarah. It does not end well for Micha. The Gemara in Sanhedrin is actually bothered by the question, why is he not listed as one of the uh, personalities that doesn't have a share in the world to come? That's how evil of a man we assume he was. What's the Gemara's answer, parenthetically? The Gemara says, because he made sure to have bread for people passing by. So it's true, he was an Ovid of Zorah. He opened up a whole temple of idol worship, and he encouraged people to follow in that warped philosophy. But he was a mensch. He deserves Olam Habo. However, there's a history to his idol. According to the Gemara in Sanhedrin, 
It says that when Klal Yisrael were crossing the Yamsuf together, and this arguably was probably the greatest miracle we ever experienced at a national level, as they're crossing the Yamsuf together, Micha's hiding something under his jacket. What does he have there? So Rashi explains. Micha also pestle, he made that little idol back in Mitzrayim. Veheviu imo, and he brought it with him. So as Klal Yisrael was leaving Egypt and crossing the Yam Suf, he had his idol with him. Yisrael hayom. You think about cognitive dissonance. Here you have a man who's participating in, in the greatest revelation of a Kaddish Baruch Hu in all of history, seeing firsthand the love, the infinite love that Hashem has for Klal Yisrael, and somehow you don't feel it's a contradiction to have in your pocket the little getchka. Right? Somehow it's okay. I could justify it. But just climbing into the mind of Micha, how did that actually work out? Did he really take an idol with him? It sounds crazy. Right? So three issues I'd like to explore, and I think they all lead us in a very similar direction. The first question is, why did Yaakov have to add on that second statement, Velolamadati, I didn't learn from Esav? Just tell me, I didn't learn from love and rather, just tell me, tell Esav, that I kept all the mitzvos. The second issue is, why does Yaakov have to tell his family, Why in the world would they have foreign gods? So I'd like to share with you a personality, Reb Zadel Epstein. We've quoted him before. He's, uh, he was one of the Gedola Yisrael, not as well known as some of the others. There is an article going back about 12 years ago in the Jewish Observer written by Rav Aaron Lapiansky where he describes some of the qualities of Rav Zadel Epstein, and he actually quotes a Pasuk from this week's Parsha. During the reunion of Yaakov and Esav, we know that they embrace, V'yipol al v'yivku, and he kissed him and they wept. So, as we could see right here in source number five, it's clear in the Chumash that there are dots on top of Yishakehu, clearly indicating that something should be different than we would have thought. That's the whole idea of having the kudos on top of a word. It's telling us, don't read it superficially, read it almost the opposite of your assumption. So there are two interpretations as to what I would have thought and what the Torah is telling me to actually think. According to one interpretation, Rashi explains that we would assume that it's, uh, it was a sincere kiss. Nashika is usually sincere. And it's telling us, it's being Megal, it's revealing that Esav really had no good intention, it was all evil. The other interpretation of Rashi is the exact opposite. That you would assume that it was not sincere, and the little dots on top of the word are telling us, in that moment, Esav really meant it. So Aaron Lapiansky explains... Even though in that moment, it could be Esav was sincere, and there was this swelling up within him of compassion and love for his brother, but it was only a temporary surge of kindness. It didn't really define his essence. It wasn't who he was. And therefore, it's not emis. 
it's sheker. Even though right now you're sincere, not to take away from it, but you can't call that truthful when that doesn't really define or, or reveal who you actually are. And therefore, even if he was sincere, the dots are letting us know because it was only a temporary surge of emotion, it wasn't really who he was. Rabbi says, Reb Epstein, anyone who knew him, anyone who was zochah to be a Talmud of Reb Epstein, you saw that whatever he said when he was teaching, giving shir and gemara, when he was sharing thoughts of Musr, it was coming straight from the lave. It was a full, pure expression of who he was. Right? Sometimes, he writes, you'll have someone giving a shear, especially when it comes to Moser, and we could all relate to this. Well, we'll get into a concept. And in that moment when we're really passionate, so we feel it, we're, we're, we're living it, we're breathing it, but it could be a week from now when we're not talking about it anymore. It's not so much part of who I am. Rabbi Zedel Epstein was emis lamito in the sense that toho kaboro. He lived his words of Musr, and there was a kedusha, there was a purity that surrounded his essence. Historically, it's interesting, he actually was able to leave Europe in 1939, Bar Hashem, right before the beginning of World War II. Uh, he had the opportunity to learn in Grodna under the guidance of Reb Shimon Shkup for two decades. He made his way to America and he served as a Rebbe in RJJ, influencing many Talmidim here in America. And then when he was almost 70, he retired and he moved to Eretz Yisrael. Now, his definition of retirement wasn't playing golf and cards with your friends, but he joined the yeshiva, the yeshiva together with Reb Chaim Pircha Scheinberg, Yeshiva Torah Or, and he became the mashkiach of the yeshiva in Torah Or. And then for the next 30 years of his life, Bahasmada, consistently, he would be giving shir and guiding the bachrim in the yeshiva Torah Or. Rosedal Epstein has a sefer, the Ha'oros, and regarding our first question as to what is Yaakov adding with his second statement, he writes as follows. It seems totally uh, extra. However, Mikan Raya, from here we could learn that it's possible to be Mekayim all of the mitzvos, to guard and keep the mitzvos with meticulous intensity, but to still be very, very influenced by the ways of Lavan. It could very well be that the essence of who I am, the way I think, the way I perceive the world around me, the way I use you in a relationship, the way I try to exploit you or, or, or my whole she'ifa, my whole ambition with, with Gashmias, I could be, I could be lovan. Lovan keeping every mitzvah, the dikduke halacha. He quotes the famous Ramban that it's possible to be a novel brishusa Torah, which basically means I can follow all of the dictates of the Torah. I could be super careful with, with, with Zahirus 
in all of the mitzvos, but I might not be a ben Torah. That might not define who I am. I could really be a lovan. I could be a very secular, non-religious person while being observant. It's not a contradiction. And therefore, the message that Yaakov was trying to share with Esav is taryag mitzvah shemarti. Obviously, that's the starting point. I did what I was supposed to do, and I refrained from Isser. But you should also know, perhaps more importantly, I didn't learn from him. I didn't allow myself to be influenced from Lavan. But the way I think, the way I feel, my heart and my mind, I'm a Jew. I'm a Ben Torah. When Yaakov later on tells his family, Remove the foreign gods. He's not referring to actual pieces of wood or stone. According to the Malbim, it means, Destroy the machshavos, those thoughts, the foreign ideologies that creep in just through being here in a secular society. Those are defined as foreign gods. Asher besoch ish velev amok within the heart of a man, deep within the way we think and perceive the world around us, we could have Elohei Neicher. We could have foreign gods and foreign philosophies. I could be walking the walk and dressing the dress and talking the talk and knowing all, as we say in Yiddish, knowing the sprach. I could fit in perfectly, but I could still be a novel, Breshus Torah. It's possible to be a lovan dressed up as a Yaakov. Lo lemanatim in haroyim. The Gra, along the same lines, he says, this is exactly what happened with Micha. It's very likely as Micha was crossing the Yamsuf together with millions of Jews, he didn't have anything in his pocket. There was no little Buddha doll, but he brought with him the Machshava. He brought with him the Elohei Necher, the foreign thoughts, the foreign ideas. Says the Grav, Micha didn't take anything with him. It's the same, the same you saw that Yaakov was telling his family, try to get rid of those thoughts, get rid of the, those perspectives. They're secular. They're, they're not Jewish. They might be very Jewish now. They might be very much entrenched in the culture of Judaism, but they might not be Torah ideals. How in the world do we avoid this? Right? We do live in a very secular culture. We do live in a very mundane uh, diaspora. So what can we do to somehow, like the Malbim says, destroy the Elohei Necher within us? So on one hand, we could argue if we're totally sheltered and totally protected so then we might have a chance. If we, as much as possible, close the doors and the windows and have no exposure to anything outside, then at least we're somewhat safe. Now, for building a home of Kedusha, there's always two elements. There's the Sur Meirah and the Asay Tov. The Sur Meirah means what we have to try to stay away from. Identifying and, and destroying and, and transcending the foreign thoughts, the Elohei Necher. But the Asay Tov is, 
But what are we actually doing proactively to, to build that infused Kedusha? Those are two separate questions. How do we protect ourselves? How do we shelter ourselves from the world around us? But the second question is, what can we do practically to, to bring that Kedusha inside, to create a sense of Nechama, which is really at the core of Simcha Sechaim? Ramosha Feinstein has a, a famous tshuva where he was getting criticized for a psak he gave that was viewed as very radical. And the way the person wrote the letter to Ramosha was, based on your ruling, Rabbi Feinstein, you are jeopardizing the tahara, the purity, and the sanctity of Kalal Yisrael. That's a pretty uh, brazen thing to say to Ramosha Feinstein. So Ramosha writes back, he says, I, I noticed in your letter you were somewhat hesitant and you thought that I might be makbid, that I might, I might not like that you're criticizing me. But you should know, I, I have no kapeda. I'm fine with that. If we have a conversation of Torah and you want to tell me I'm wrong, go for it. Let's have a back and forth. However, you should know, the truth is, nothing that I said. There was no aspect of the ruling that I gave that would actually jeopardize the purity of Kalal Yisrael. We're not going to get into what exactly was said. That's a whole different subject matter. But everything I was paskening was based on the Torah, on the Rishonim, on the Shulchan Aruch, on the Poskim. Your hashkafa, where you're coming from, you're actually coming from a very outside of the Torah source. Sometimes outside of the Torah looks less religious, and sometimes it may look even more religious. Sometimes it may be living in a facade of frumkite, of religiosity. Says Ramosha, don't think just because you're being more stringent than I am, that means you're closer to the Torah ideal. The Torah ideal is based on the Torah itself. And he says, regarding this, I am makbid. I don't care if you argue with me. Feel free to criticize. That's okay. But don't come at me from outside sources. And he concludes his tshuva by saying, You should know, Ani Baruch Hashem, Kol Hashkafosi, all of my Hashkafa, all of my worldview, Rak Miyadiyas HaTorah. It only comes from my knowledge in Torah. Blishum Tarovus Miyadiyas Chetzonius, without anything mixed in from outside sources or influences. How many human beings alive today can say that all of our feelings, all of our perspectives on morality, on what's considered ethical and spirituality, only comes from within the Torah and we have no outside factors, no other distractions? Probably very few people can say that. So on one hand, that might be one way of, of protecting ourselves from all of the external elements, but for many of us, it's just not practical. 
There's no way to make ourselves retroactively into a Ramosha Feinstein where our whole lives are just saturated and absorbed with the Chachma Satora. Unfortunately, we don't have that same reality as Ramosha Feinstein. So what can we do? Now, the goal of this conversation is not to get involved with technicalities or too many examples, but just to share a few of the hashkafas we find. Obviously, the more that we allow to penetrate our homes and the way we think, so then the more influenced we are and the more likely it is that we don't really have that anchor in Torah. And how we, we view the world and how we view ourselves is very much mushpa. It's influenced by so many other factors around us. This is a famous letter that goes back probably about 40 years. A letter that was written by the stipler Gon, Rav Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky, together with Rav, uh, Rav Shach. At the time, they were the two leaders of Torah Jewry. And they write about the, the dangers of television. This is going back way before there was any conversation regarding the internet. But one interesting thing they point out is they say sometimes we as parents or teachers feel that for the children it's not as big of a deal. And listen, they're young, they need something, especially if it's a really hot and humid day in Florida, they can't do anything outside anyway. So uh, we say for them, for them it's okay. Says the stipler of Shach, right? We're making a grave mistake. When it comes to children, there's actually more of a danger. The desire to emulate, right? To copy what I see. In, in, in the mind and the heart of a young child is so strong. And for sure, writes the stipler of Shach, when they're not only seeing something from a distance, but they're experiencing something through the emotion of both the, you know, hearing it, the, the visual, the music in the background, the excitement. There's so much here in this form of entertainment that really draws me in and can make a very strong, very powerful and lasting Roshim and how I, how I think. And everything we see when we're younger, it gets ingrained in our psyche. And anything we see when there's hispilus, when there's, when there's, when there's emotion involved. Right, you think back to a theme song of a, of a show you happened to see 25, 30 years ago, and it's still, it's still right here. Right, you think of the A-Team. I never saw it myself, obviously, but I heard there was a show, the A-Team. Right? It's like, who doesn't know that song? Imagine if you had that level of recall when it came to Mishnayis, right? Imagine if you knew every Mishnah Babakama the same way, you know, the theme song of the A-Team. The truth is the stipler writes elsewhere, that's really one of the most powerful tools in remembering Torah. He says about himself that 
I, I don't have a great memory naturally, but whenever you learn Behispilus, when you really get into it and there's an emotional connection, so then it sticks with you forever. Just like everyone remembers where they were when they heard about 9-11, I remember where I was when I read this Kasha of the Kitsos because it moved me so much. But that's what they write regarding uh, the issue of television and how potentially when it comes to children, any form of external, um, it could be through the TV, it could be through the computer, it could be something that we're listening to, when it's coming behispilus, when there's, when there's so much to it that it, grade, it ingrains itself in the way I think and the way I feel, it might not ever leave me. That's a very scary thing to think about. I found a letter, this is actually from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, also speaking about the, his concern for TV going back probably 50 years ago, 40 years ago. He says that even the violence, even many of the things that we're not so concerned about, these, uh, these images and these experiences that we're, that we're allowing our children to partake of definitely has an impact on their midos. It could be very connected to higher levels of aggression, higher levels of, of anger. Obviously, every single family, every single person has to think about carefully, where are we? What are we allowing in the house? What do we feel comfortable with? Because oftentimes what we're doing is not even what we ourselves feel comfortable with. It's not about having somebody else superimpose upon you restrictions and guidelines. Oftentimes, it's just me asking myself, do I really want this level of access? Do I really want this possibility of exposure? At Baruch Hashem, recently we had Rabbi Meth come over and working with TAG, um, we got a new laptop and he put in a brilliant filter. It's a filter that you could pretty much self-design to whatever level you feel comfortable with, um, what you want access to and what you want to be blocked. And it's incredible. You know, so there are so many wonderful technologies available out there. The question is not having someone tell me what I need to be doing and, and micromanaging how we use technology or what we allow in our homes, but it's just opening up with ourselves, with a spouse, with our family, and asking, are we really okay with this? And if we're not so okay with this, let's take some practical steps forward. Rachel and Leah were praised that every one of their children, they named after their recognition of Hashem's hashgacha. What was the great the great Shevach, why was that such a big deal? So the Relbag says, because they were raised in homes where their parents were non-believers, and therefore they were brought up in a whole different society. The fact that they were able to see the total Hashkacha in every one of their children, that's, that's incredible. And that's why the Relbag explains that Rachel and Leah are praised because even though they came from a background that was totally void of morality in Torah, they were still able to see the hand of Hashem in everything they did. Even though they were living with Yaakov for many, many years, and you could imagine the, the Kedusha of their own neshamos, 
and everything that they have been through, working on themselves, their spirituality, their tefillah, their meditation. But it seems like that even after decades of being the wife of Yaakov Avinu, of being the mother of Klal Yisrael, the fact that I grew up in an environment that wasn't machshiv this, that didn't give this particular lifestyle importance or credence, that could possibly still have an impact on me decades later. That's true regarding negative influence, but that's definitely true regarding positive influence. The, the level of simcha that we're able to infuse in the home, the level of, of menucha senefesh that we can bring in, the joy that comes from the kedusha and the kedusha that comes from the joy. These are things that kids remember forever. They might not recall one particular conversation, but it's the overall avira, it's the atmosphere in the house. Kedusha is not something that we cringe and we have to say the word holy or sanctified. Kedusha brings the greatest nachama and simcha in the world. It's about trying as much as we can to shelter ourselves, to protect ourselves from the, the Elohei Necher, and at the same time, building the Kedusha within the home. I want to share with you uh, something written by one of the daughters of Rebelski. I saw this a few weeks ago in the biography of Rebelski. She writes that our lifestyle was very simple. We were, when we were growing up, we wore secondhand clothing. Our meals were wholesome, filling, but plain. There was plenty of food at the Shabbos table for ourselves and our many guests, but the menu was plain with no extras. We drank either water or homemade lemonade. It was only when I was a teenager that I first realized how little we had in the way of materialism. I never thought of us as poor. There was a happy atmosphere in our home, and our parents never discussed money in our presence. We had what we needed, and we needed no more. When there's financial discussions, when there's anxiety that we all have, when it comes to monetary issues, and we share that anxiety with the children, it's not just the, an emotional baggage that we're placing upon them, but that could chip away at the Kedushas Habayas. That could actually take away from the sanctity of the home. I went to, uh, to be Menachem, Rabbi Yachnes, Avram Yachnes, his mother passed away. Babi Yachnes, she was known as, really known as Babi Yachnes to hundreds and hundreds of people. An incredible woman. They can really write a, a Gadol book about her. Hashem, they will one of these days. One quote that Rabbi Yachnes shared with me, maybe I think it was Mrs. Yachnes who shared this. She said that Babi Yachnes, when they were growing up, a lot of children in the house, the house had an open door policy of people coming in and out and it was all good. She always would say, it's okay if the house is small, as long as the heart is big. When you're growing up in that kind of house, where the mama and the tata are saying, it's okay if the house is small. The conversations we're having are not just an expression of envy of how much they have and how little we have and how deserving we are. That's not the main topic of conversation. The conversation is people relating to each other, 
Simcha Sachayim. It's that Kedusha that we could build upon. We could only build upon it if we're able to at least shut some of those doors, close some of those windows, protect ourselves in a responsible way. That's the Sur Meirah. Then we have the ability for the Esay Tov. We should all be Zoha to be able to say, we kept the Torah, we did what we were supposed to do, we, had, we ate matzah and Pesach, we didn't, we didn't touch Chazer, and we were able to protect ourselves, staying away, sheltering ourselves from the outside world, and at the same time trying to be proactive in creating an atmosphere of Kedusha, of Simcha, of Menuchas and Nefesh in the home. Okay, Shkoyach.